The Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what they have done, what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the, see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Dear friends in Christ, you are loved by God, called to be God's holy people, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This episode from the story of Jesus' life that is reported in today's gospel reading, together with the reading from last Sunday, is a pivotal point in Matthew's telling of the life of Christ. It is also the beginning of the third and final section of the gospel. The first section is a presentation of Jesus as the Messiah and Savior. The second se section talks about the public ministry of Jesus as he brings the kingdom of God into the world. The final section concerns his suffering, death, and resurrection. Today's reading is pivotal because for the first time Jesus announces that it is necessary. There is a divine imperative that he travel to Jerusalem where he will undergo great suffering at the hands of the religious leaders. He will be put to death and on the third day be raised from the dead. The circumstances and events surrounding the birth of Jesus Messiah show that this that this one is given to the world in accordance with God's plan. The coming of Jesus Messiah fulfills scriptural prophecy and reveals the righteousness of God. What Jesus teaches us is good news and God's will for how we should live. His mighty works of healing, showing his mastery over nature and feeding multitudes are intended to demonstrate that Jesus is God's son. But what he does in giving his life on the cross and receiving it back again makes our salvation possible. In the first part of this episode, which we heard last Sunday, Peter confesses his faith that Jesus 
is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus pronounces him blessed because such faith is a gift from God. Now, as Jesus shows his followers that suffering and death are integral to the mission of Messiah, Peter refuses to believe. He scolds Jesus and says that such things should never happen to God's Son. Jesus recognizes the voice of the evil one in what Peter says. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to Peter. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And Jesus goes on to teach us how to set our minds on the things of God. Those who want to follow Jesus are called to put Jesus first in all areas of life. In self-denial, the follower of Jesus will discover the life that really is life. As we take up our cross, dying daily to sin, we are raised to new life in Christ's eternal kingdom. Just as the cross and resurrection were the goal and purpose of Christ coming to earth, so the cross and resurrection shape the life of the believer. What does a life shaped by the cross, cross and resurrection look like? It looks like the kind of life we would want for ourselves. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, has given us a picture of what a cruciform life looks like. The second lesson today is the Apostle's summary of how people live when they are minding the things of God. It is significant to point out that while the call to discipleship comes to individuals, take up your cross, singular, the cross-shaped life is only possible in community. Mary Hinkle Shore, former associate professor of New Testament at Luther Seminary, writes in a commentary on workingpreacher.org, as God shapes the shared life of the saints, that life is characterized by genuine love. Since we are part of Christ's church, we have the possibility to live in a way that honors Jesus. When you were listening to Romans 12, 9 through 21, did you get a picture of the kind of community you would like the church to be? Of course, we often come up short of this, of this ideal, but that doesn't mean that we should give up and lose sight of the possibilities that are open to us as spirit-fed and spirit-led people. I like to think of this passage, I like to think of this passage as what is possible when we let God have his way in our lives. Where Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves, to lose their life for his sake, Paul puts it a little differently. But the results are the same. Paul says in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He puts the same idea somewhat differently at the beginning of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The passage we have today, Romans 12, 9 through 21, shows the kind of life 
possible when people are living for Christ instead of themselves. It sounds almost like poetry to me. I thought it might be interesting to present a more literal translation, my own, <laughs> along with an occasional comment to help us listen to this description of the cross-shaped life that God working through his church makes possible. Verse 9, the love, non-hypocritical, abhorring the evil, glued to the good. The word for being glued can also be translated as cling or adhere. As an example, I think about those stickers your mechanic puts on the inside of your windshield to remind you of your next oil change. They come off easy. In contrast, Christians are glued to what is good, like the stickers you get for an annual pass for state parks. You have to use a razor blade to get them off. Verse 10, the brotherly love toward one another affectionate. I'm reminded of the firefighters in New York City on 9-11. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people trying to deal with wildfires, hurricanes, and tropical rainstorms are experiencing similar, similar brotherly love from neighbors near and far in their time of need. Being leaders in honoring each other, Christians are always looking for the best in others. Verse 11, the diligence, not timid. This diligence is one of the qualities Paul attributes to good leaders in 12.8. The spirit near the boiling point. Fervent is a word that comes to mind. A little intensity beats a room full of apathy. Serving the Lord. This is central to the whole program of a cross-shaped life. Who do you work for? Whose church is this? Verse 12. In hope rejoicing. We have a lot to look forward to, and our Lord Jesus Christ is reigning now. He told his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, I am with you always. In suffering, bearing up. The Lord took Joseph from the pit his brothers had thrown him into and made him a ruler in the land of Egypt. In prayer, remaining constant. God wants to hear our prayers. Verse 13. The needs of the saints, this would include all baptized believers, the needs of the saints sharing. The word here is an old favorite, koinonia, which is also translated as fellowship and communion. The beautiful old hymn has it this way, we share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Pursuing hospitality for the stranger, this is getting a little harder. I'm starting to see why we need God's spirit in us to live as the body of Christ. Only in him will we find the grace to put this into practice, blessing the ones persecuting you, blessing and not cursing. In verse 15, Paul touches on the heart of ministry. Rejoice with the ones who are rejoicing. Cry with the ones who are crying. 
Verse 16, have the same mind toward one, one another, no way thinking of yourselves better, but accompanying the humble. Treat everyone the same, the way Jesus has befriended us, who while we were still sinners, gave his life for us. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 17, never give back anyone, never to anyone give back evil for evil. Think ahead of time about what is good in the sight of all people. There's not much anyone would want to change about the way verse 18 is translated. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, don't vindicate yourselves, beloved, but give place to wrath, for it has been, been written to me vengeance, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, again, God, God asks us to do the impossible, but everything is possible to the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. For in, so, in doing this, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. I'm not at all sure what that means, but I'm reminded of something Abraham Lincoln once said. Am I not destroying my enemies when I make friends of them? Verse 21, do not let yourselves be conquered by evil, but by means of what is good, conquer evil. What amazing possibilities lay before us as members of Christ's church with the love of Christ poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we can work together with God to overcome evil with good. Amen, in Jesus' name.